Please pronounce your name correctly for me. That's a very good question. My name is Andrew Fednak. That's the Anglization of it. So yeah. Anglization. Where is it from? It's originally a Western Ukrainian name and it's transliterated and then anglicized both from changing the alphabet and then changing the pronunciation to what it is now, Fednak here. All right. So you don't want to be referred to as a publisher. So give me a little sort of... Uh... No, no, no. I, I, I refer to as a publisher, yeah. Okay, all right. Not as a founder. That's the one you didn't want. That's okay, founder. One, yeah. okay. I'm a publisher for sure, every day of the week, unfortunately, sometimes. but Give me a little sort of a, a general day-to-day -day of what you do, because you're both a practicing photographer as well as you're a publisher. You're also a book designer. Give me some more information. What else are you doing? That's pretty much the week at that point when you're talking about publishing and designing books and working on the books you're designing for our company, sometimes for other people, doing edits for them. And then my own personal work, which unfortunately gets sidetracked to the side, but that's the same as any professor who teaches five days a week and then, uh, you know, a 4-4 or a 3-3 load. And then they're, they're, they're lucky if they get studio practice for themselves three days or two days a week. So it's similar to that kind of layout, but no, very much so a publisher, you know, publisher and owner of Zatara Press. Where did that name come from, Zatara? The origin of the company is out of the Hartford Art School, where I went as a master's to get my master's into my MFA at University of Hartford, Hartford Art School's limited residency photo book making program. And in it, we were making these books that we had to, or graduate books to graduate. And out of that, you know, the first two books of Zatara Press are the first two books from that program, which I've completed two books in the program. Some people complete one book. I completed a book the first year and I get to still make a book. So you make another book. And so I needed a name for that. And I decided to, I'd already had ideas to make this company back in 2013. And then by 2014 is when we're actually publishing those books. And so Zatara is about driftwood and ugly because of referring to this wabi-sabi design aesthetic that I, we work in. And I've been working in, with this design aesthetic and this, this uh, way of being, this ethos, this Zen ethos of wabi-sabi since about 2006. I've been practicing in Zen since, I've tried to remember exactly, it's not an exact start, but like 2001 period, different periods of aggressiveness in it, of course, I think probably a little more least aggressive at the beginning of graduate school. And that was very normal because of where I was living. So this idea of creating this wabi-sabi books, these books that are perfect and imperfect, but also beautiful, the worn, the imperfection, and that being this idea of unique art object books with this design aesthetic was this idea to launch this company. What does the word Zatara mean, and what does it mean to the the title of the publishing company? It means driftwood or raft or ugly okay. in that sense, and that's the definitions we use for it. There's some debate about whether it means that, depending on who you talk to, but that's the story, and we're sticking to it. One of the things that I like to know about people is sort of their childhood. And so were your parents creative? Uh, how did you get to being creative in and of itself? 
Well, we didn't throw the word creative around in that period. That's more of a contemporary word, post-2009, being thrown around really heavily in marketing and social spheres. But my parents come from, you know, they're working people who work their middle-class jobs. And my mother had a lot of creative aspects to her when she worked in the theater. And I grew up in the theater with my mother, who was doing theater and both in a community level and sometimes semi-professional, also was always had some sort of new craft project or some sort of new hobby they were doing on about every three-year period, I feel like it switched. But my father, who would go around never saying he's creative, was actually extremely hands-on and creative in building and working on pieces of wood or fixing something in the house. And so those both work ethic and the spark of finding something creative come does come from them very much so you know though they don't think of themselves in that sense because they value creativity as being sometimes equated monetarily which it shouldn't be but so they don't necessarily define themselves that way but i've looked back in the past and gone no they were very creative and I mean, it was a generational thing where like there was a time when when you know the definition of like being an artist or being a creative person was sort of looked down upon in the American yeah. society and it's becoming much more acceptable these days because also I think the the nature of like uh, the commercial arts as well as the fine arts can easily be blended a lot of people who do fine arts do commercial arts to just get by basically to you know fund their their fine art projects possibly sort of like you, like you're doing book designs in order to fund your own creative projects. Well, I mean, yeah, that's, there's no money in photo book making, you know that. So I assume that's been talked about on the podcast a couple dozen times. So it, it just isn't, you know, you make art for the sake of making art, you make art for the love of making the art and doing the art. And if you're here to want to be famous, which is what a lot of people want to do these days, which is a big problem, which is part of why I don't teach anymore, that's not why people do it. You know, they want to make money. That's the other thing. Then they get frustrated because they can. Well, you know, that's not how it works. So. Oh, no. Yeah. When I was a kid, I remember thinking like having a book was like my big artistic life goal. And then as I've gotten older, I realized that well, through conversations with people such as yourself that like, you know, photo, like producing a monograph generally, I mean, unless you're Sally Mann or anybody like that generally is not a money-making venture. It's, but it's a, it's a sort of a nice sort of recognition in the industry when you can have a book published, like there's a certain amount of that. That's nice. Looks great on the CV sort of, you know, ups your credibility in the industry when you have a book out there. Yeah, for certain, in, especially in the academic world, which is one of the many branches of tree, the tree branches of photography, which is a whole analogy I could go off on. But people think of it that way. Some do it for it to be a stepping stone, for it to be a, a thing that they have to have. And, you know, one should make a book because they feel the work needs to make a book or the work dictates a book, not necessarily because they want it to be a book or a monograph or an artist book, which are all different types of photo books. You know, I want to hear about your tree of branches of photography. Yeah. A lot of the analogies, and I speak too much in aphorisms, analogies, and slang, which I get in trouble with, is me trying to figure out how to explain to the students I'd had, assistants I'd had, 
or to my family or my, my mother and my father how this whole photo thing actually works, how this whole art thing actually works. And I'm going to tell you, I've been trying to explain it to them forever. I think my dad gets it. I'm not so sure about some of the other family members. I really do think he gets it. But the idea is it's this tree and there's all these categories of photography and you can have like divide the tree into hobbyist and professional, but then you divide it into branches of, you know, fashion, journalism, editorial, just journalism, I guess, like, you know, fine art, academia, and certain ones overlap the branches, some interact. And then they tend to like not want to talk to each other, like a hardworking, professional, high-end fashion photographer will be just as trained and as hardworking as a high-end academic fine art documentary bookmaking photographer, but they'll look down on each other. There's no reason they should, but they do a lot of times. And that's some of the disconnect in our industry. And I've always thought there should be more of a unification, a love of photography of the whole. And some people have advocated for this in the past. I'm not saying anything new, but it's never been achieved. It's always still very defined by what your track you get into. And maybe you're allowed to venture out of your track a little bit if you're good enough. You can play in movies edit or film or short film. If you're good enough, you can play in editorial and fine art documentary while you're now becoming a professor because there's no newspapers in America anymore or any of these things. Maybe you're changing your tracks, but like there's not a lot of collaboration. But, you know, you can get far enough on the two branches of the tree, like the fashion on one side where they don't communicate. Before I went to Hartford Art School for my MFA, I was at the International Center of Photography, which is kind of a mistake, but we won't go into that. But one of its positives was there were these people interested in all this photography there and all these different branch types. And that, you know, was nice because at one point I played around a little bit of all of it myself personally, you know, all these different types. I've run into this numerous times in my life. Like I often say that like generally I don't get along with most other photographers because a lot of photographers are very catty and they're very competitive and they're very, um, judgy like i i you know like for instance i went to san francisco art institute i walk into my first class linda connor i love linda connor however our first interaction did not go very well because i put up my artwork and she just turns quietly to me and goes are you sure you want to be an artist and i'm like oh fuck you like seriously fuck you like you, like what? I, you just accepted me into your MFA program, and first critique you question whether I want to be an artist. Fuck you. So, but in the long that's term, a different I, setting though. That is that is a educational setting where you, on some level, should be challenged. Maybe it could have been said a little better, differently, but you should be challenged. And you and I can talk about MFAs and undergrads where they don't challenge people. They pay the money and the student goes through and gets out at the end. And Linda's great at this. Hartford was great at this. Hartford had, has about a quarter failure rate for each of its, you know, each of its cohorts, you know, each of its classes. It's incredibly difficult because of that, but it's amazing because of that. 
And so is SFAI. It's very difficult because of things like that. Uh, you know? Yeah, don't get me wrong. I was furious with her. I mean, like, but <laughs> the, the thing is, is that what I realized after graduation, so like it took me a couple of years to even figure this out, was that that was her way of trying to motivate me. Uh, at the time, at the exact moment, it was her way, like I felt it was her way of insulting me. But in reality, that was sort of her teaching methodology that yeah. she would you know, try to, uh, like it was actually the entire program's teaching methodology, which was they, they broke the first year, they basically broke you down and, and destroyed you. And then the second year they rebuilt you. Yeah, it's the same at Hartford. Hartford yeah. was set up about the same way. And that's a style, it's a style of teaching. There's another style of teaching where the professor and the student break down the walls and are collaborating together more. And that was a style pre the 1980s. Minor White was working in that style among many, many others and in other genres too, because my background is wider than just photography. And so we've gone away from that with the art stars of the 80s all becoming then professors and then this hierarchy system, not just in photo, but in, but in academia, in United States academia in general, of this, you know, the professor is right and he breaks you down. The professor is rough on you. And yeah, we all took it hard when we were doing it. It's a while ago in my head now, but I know some people that are still jaded about that experience to this day. <laughs> oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. I, like, she pissed me. She pissed me off. But then also the, some of the other students there pissed me off as well. And I ended up leaving the photography program and switched into the new genre program. And <laughs> and it sounds horribly ironic, I know. But but the it was the best actually education I ever got. Uh, I've said this numerous times. The but caveat that. I already had a BA in studio art, then I had a BFA in photography, and then I went for my MFA. And when I got there, having the foundation of the studio arts and the emphasis in photography, then being able to go into a new genre class where the focus was on what makes good art in any medium of expression was the greatest education but having already that foundation so like i don't like those new genre interdisciplinary bachelor degrees i think those mm -hmm. are a horrible idea but if you have a foundation in general studies or some specialization then you go into a master's and have that broader interdisciplinary education i think it's very beneficial mm -hmm. did i mention by the way i'm also a professor I know you're a professor. Yeah. Okay. Good. I, was just um, sure. I don't teach. I'm not a professor. I'm almost considered a, a retired or a renegade professor, as a joke among some of my colleagues. Because well, I, you I don't, did. You were. I have taught. Time. I have taught. I've never taught full time. No one will hire me. But there's also very few places to get the jobs anymore. But that's the world now, you know. So that's been that's. That's the problem with academia in America. So I'm not telling anything like any of your podcast listeners don't already know. It's horrible. <laughs> I mean, I I went in, when when I went to school. So I was in school late eight, late nineties, early two thousands. It was there. There were still tenure positions. Oh, yeah. There were still full time employment as for teachers and all this kind of stuff. And like that stuff is just gone. Like there's 
no schools want to hire even full-time professors, much less tenure track professors, because they don't want to pay the the health benefits. They don't no. want to pay the retirement funds. No. They don't want to pay this. So like nope. every, yeah. like I've been looking around for jobs back in the U S and the, mm -hmm. they're all adjunct. Like there yep. are, are almost no full-time positions. And you tell me how you, how you can live off of $3,100 for three credit hours. You tell me how you can live off of that. $3,100 for three credit hours, but you're only allowed to teach two classes a semester. By working with multiple schools. If the multiple schools will hire you. Well, if the multiple schools are even within a driving range that you can work even, at. Even if you live in a region where there are multiple schools like I do. It's not sustainable. It hasn't, it hasn't been in years, and it's a problem going back over a decade. We're not going to solve it on the podcast. I'll say that. <laughs> it's like world peace or something. It, it, it's partially the universities becoming corporations and at the at the administration level I'm talking about, not necessarily at the teaching level and and becoming focused on that dollar and what prop, property value, you know, like of what they can buy property. And that's this is a problem all over the United States. So I'm not bashing anybody. So. <laughs> not anybody specific just no, any this is an overall issue but similar to there being an overall issue where art is really popular right now and i don't mean popular but i mean popular to the masses it is become cool to be an artist when you and i were growing up everyone wanted to be a musician we all wanted to be musicians it was cool to be a musician we all wanted to be musicians Musician, I thought I, I wanted to try to play a guitar. I can't play guitars. Let's not even pretend. I can't keep a beat, but I played drums. Exactly. We all wanted to be that because that was cool. And then in about uh, around 2010, 2011, but really maybe even a little earlier, it became really cool to be an artist. And I mean that from like uh, masses, from the ethos and uh, collective consciousness. Like, And so now it was that's the new thing, like being a musician. So now we are like all the musician friends of ours who hated the fact that we all wanted to be musicians, you know, and they were always like, oh, God, another band, garage band trying to start up. It's kind of like that, but with art now and everyone can do that. And this great democratization of it, though, can be a beautiful thing and generate some amazing things, but it also waters everything down and makes it a lot harder to find the good work. But that's what I realized one day is that we, were, you know, everyone was just trying trying to be a musician, but trying to be an artist now or a photographer. So you know, indeed. Well, I mean, the the words curate are now part of social media and everything else in people's lives. So like, yeah. the the terms that were segregated for many years in in the arts world yes. are now have now become part of pop culture. Yeah. And some of it's social media that did this. It's not entirely like I said. This is a gradual thing. It's a lot has to do with we all have cameras in our pockets. I don't shoot with that. I've never shot with that. I had a cell phone for a few years recently until recently. I didn't have a camera. But that democratization in combination with social media, which is I'm a little younger than you, is my generation's fault. We built it. Sorry about that. Apologize. Eh, mixed blessing. I used to live next to guys who went to school with Zuckerberg. So, like, you know, like, you know, it's, it's, you know, that really is, it is not, it's a horrible thing. It's, it's, it communicates a little bit with people, but it creates this addictive gamification and this ability to everyone now, all they do is just promote themselves. We're no longer artists. We're supposed to be brands. And when I got into this, we were about making art 
And I still very much, the foundation of Zatara Press is about making photo books. We are not a brand. We are not, Zatara Press is not about a lifestyle company with tote bags and, and selling you associated other things that I will not list, but they could be jam, olive oil, and coffee. Wait, I, wait, wait, you're a book company and you've never created a tote bag. We Every did t-shirts. We did t-shirts at one point. We couldn't sell them. We ended up giving them away, most of them. We sold some, but like no one wanted them. So we ended up giving them away. It was an experiment. I realized we should focus on what we were good at too, by the way, at that function. Some of these are book, well, most, I would say 80% of them are book companies, but there's about 20% that are more lifestyle companies. And it's about the digital brand they present and articles and information and them trying to essentially tell people why they are, why they think they should be the expert to tell you why this work is important instead of letting the work speak for itself or letting the photography just be really good and be the love of photography or the love of the art object photo book. I'm of your generation. So like to me, this all like, it's like, yeah, you're preaching to the choir here, my friend. But, I know, yeah. I know I'm but, preaching. I'm preaching to like mine. I got that within the first five minutes of the podcast. But <laughs> it's hard because like that's the 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 way the world is going. I mean, I'm constantly battling with the whole nature of like social media in and of itself. The nature of the, the nature of the fact that artists these days, like so, like when we were being coming up, artists went to they went and they put their they gave their books their work to publishers or to galleries and then those people did all the work for them and yeah. their and the artist's job was just to produce beautiful things whatever that was or no, not even beautiful that's probably a bad word to make amazing artistic expressive ideas and and then it was the job of the publisher the gallerist or whoever else to manage their career basically but now these days, that job has been handed back to us. So not only do we have to make our art, but we also have to become some sort of marketing guru or a brand or whatever. And it's really annoying. It is. and But it, it's also very collaborative in that function, though, too. Zatara Press, because we only published a few books a year, we function as very much, you know, almost like a, an intimate gallery, almost like representing my artist's and spending time with them but it is this collaborative effort to get the books out because i i wasn't around in the era where the publisher was carrying your weight and if you talk to some of the, the great people i've worked with like robert lyons like they'll talk about that era where they published in in fifty thousand copies hundred thousand you know numbers you can't even imagine in edition sizes and where they they where the publisher did all this work but the reality is, you know, it's been like this probably since the early 2000s, you know, even before the social media push. And it's just been, this is what it is. You know, we have to work on this together. This is what happens when there's a million fish in the pool. And that's why we all have what you need is a tertiary form of income and some way to make money doing things while you're also making money doing this. And it all goes into the pot. Some people that teaching is their tertiary form of income for some people it could be an investment portfolio. Some could be an alternative business. I know some friends who have rental properties. I mean, they pay mortgages on that, but the rental property helps enough for the mortgage and then extra for the art making. I know others who have, you know, I used to know guys who were painters who would do three days on as an emergency room nurse, three days off as a painter, like oil painting. So that's a classic example. I forgot about that one. It was a good one. 
we always have to figure out that balance. And we're always going to be figuring out that balance between self-promotion and branding and that balance between the purity of making the art form. And at some point to me around 2011 or 2013, I was like the purity of the art form is more important to me than bastardizing it to do a whole bunch of commercial work that I wasn't happy with. I, I would rather find another way to make money and, and backstrap that or back back boot that onto the, you know, onto the making of the books and the art, because the books don't make money. So and and figure in the photography and do that. Which would have been teaching if, you know, if teaching were different, probably. Some level of the stepping out of teaching wasn't just a lack of finding positions, but was also a a bit of a disconnect to today's generation where, which is all my nieces and nephews, by the way, I have a lot of, I do associate with the generation in that function, but I have a lot of trouble understanding what's going through their, their heads. And I mean, I'm talking 18 to 21, like that group right there. You're like, that's what I'm talking about. The current group you'd be teaching right now. I have a lot of trouble. It doesn't make them bad person. It doesn't mean I don't agree with them. I have a lot of trouble with the logic pattern the logic structure sometimes, you know, I agree with the opinions, but I don't know how they got to it sometimes. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, I think it's just a generational thing, but I mean, the, the generations have changed. Like I remember my generation, like we took on the, the, the characteristics of the previous generation. Whereas I feel like now there's been a huge amount of changes and stuff in, in one generation, you know, cause like, in my generation, there was no such thing as the internet when I was in college. So like, so everything internet related has been since I graduated college. So like, yeah, that's a huge leaps and bounds of changes, you know, just not just social media, but like everything internet related is all brand new that was not there when I was young. And they've got smartphones since basically birth almost essentially. And I didn't even have a cell phone until we were in college and I had the internet had the internet since 1995. I was on the internet in 93, but as a kid, but like it does change that perspective, you know, and it is that, that smartphone really being, you have the computer in your pocket and then the generational shift where I have more in common with my baby boomer parents, you know, we're old, I'm the youngest, and as opposed to the next younger generations. And we're creating these micro generations and not these bigger generations. They like the academics still want to put you into bigger generations. But I think technology is shrinking these. Other friends of mine agree with me on this, and it's that function, you know. All right. But we're supposed to talk about art, right? I was going to say, enough waxing on poetically about our gripes about society. So let's get to like the, the press itself. One of my big questions, of course, always that I have for publishers is just basically how do you find the people you choose to publish? All right. Well, there's a secret catalog we all have. And we open exactly. it up and there's phone numbers and we call them. No, no, that's not how it works. What really how it works is it's all about who you know and it's networking. And I hate to say that. And it's the truth, though. Relationship building is how you make connections and how not only do you get work into museums and curations and galleries, curators and other spaces, it's also how you make photo books. And how do you get in front of that person, though, and create that connection is what matters as, as the artist, not as the publisher. And as the artist, you got to go out to events. You got to go out to portfolio reviews. You need to have friends introduce you and vouch for you. And if you put those 
together, you might luck out and connect and hit a connection with a publisher or an individual who wants to collaborate with you. We found people at both portfolio reviews, people we knew, friends of friends. We've asked outright strangers to make books, also people you know that were close friends. We've done books that were more hands-off. We've done books where we were entirely in the mud up to our head, you know, so it, it changes up, you know, but you gotta, you gotta be out there breaking bread. Sending blind submissions is a function that exists, but it's the worst way to do it. It doesn't mean you can't do it. I'm still doing it. I'm, I got mailers in the other room I got to send out. I'm still doing it, but it is the least functional way to do it. And then social media is the second least functional way after that. The best way is to break bread in person, which is why COVID-19 has been such a big problem. It's, 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 you know, limited that collaboration and that organic connection that how you meet people, you know, it might be, I see someone's work three or four times before I, I want to work with them. Point in fact, a book we're working with Justin Fizette right now, I reviewed his work at Review Santa Fe, looked at him again at Medium in San Diego, and then kind of casually I saw the work like a kind of like a third time in San Diego, like on a bed that he was showing it to a colleague of mine, to a friend, Brandon Thibodeau, who's a great photographer and bookmaker, and he was showing these beautiful prints. And I was like, oh, for the third time, almost had to sometimes get out of your photo brain and let it relax a little bit. And then, you know, maybe you'll make that connection and decide, oh, we should make this book, which we've been trying working on now for a while. So that's a great example. Some are just cold calls. You know, we we cold emailed Jenny Riffle. Jenny Riffle had a show at New Space in Portland, Oregon. I knew Chris Bennett, who was the former founder and of New Space Photo Center, which is not around anymore. It was an organic, it was a nonprofit photo space. It doesn't exist in Portland, Oregon anymore. And he had had a show with her in it about a year before. She knew a lot of people I knew from the School of Visual Arts in New York. And I cold emailed her and said, I want to make this book. Let's make this book. And um, that's in a great example of a great relationship. I almost, it's not almost, it's about what projects you want to work on, you know? So that's probably your next question. <laughs> no, that was not my next question. Okay. But yeah, yeah. We can, you can ask, you can answer that question. Yeah, it, it's about what, People ask me all the time, what do I publish? Not how you just, how you find people, but how, what do you want to publish? And it's about what interests me. What projects do I want to say something about? And I want to say something about maybe aging in pictures from the next day or more of a political statement like days before, days after, or the environment in Everglades. It's just some examples, health and nutrition and homesick. These are some prevailing themes that I wanted to dialogue about, which is part of why I wanted to make those books with those individuals or those projects interested me. And it's got to be something I want to work because you're going to work on it for a year and a half, you know, maybe minimum. And you're going to promote them and work with them intimately, almost in a collaborative gallery sense, for two to three years afterwards in this small press format that I'm in. Bigger small press publishers have a little different model. And then the bigger publishers like passion have a completely different model but in my model that's kind of how it is and yeah you want to make sure you're almost vetting the person's personality too like who do you want to spend time with 
Well, that's one question I often have, which is basically when you meet an artist and let's say the work is amazing, like, like earth shattering, like, oh my God, this is amazing. I totally want to publish a book with this person, but they're a little shit to work with. Like they're arrogant or they're, they, they don't follow deadlines or whatever. Like what's more important? Like that, that they are pleasurable and enjoyable to work with, or that they make amazing work. You hope that you have pleasurable and enjoyable to work with with amazing work. Always, it's not, yeah. It's not you want that. It's not necessarily one or the other. Always, it's not like one of those three things you get to pick, but you can only have two. Yeah, you don't pick the work just because it's some name. Uh, at least we don't. And one business model in photo book making, and there are a number of medium-sized to large-sized small press publishers who do this, they just pick famous names and publish them because it's going to generate revenue to make their books, which all look the same, to make the next set of books. And we can talk about the other four business models of photo book making if you want. But the point is they don't care because they're not intimately working with these people. They're actually got a few levels of shells away from the director or the designer, even from that person, you know, I'm intimately working shoulder to shoulder with the people we're with. They're, they can be separated by a lot and not even interact with them. So what's better? It's better to have the person that you want to spend the time with in hindsight, 2020, yeah, I can say that without dropping names in hindsight, 2020, it's better to have the person that you would want to spend the time with but you don't know who that's going to be. You try to make an educated guess for the quality of the work, but also a lot of a portfolio review, everybody, is character analysis. And I'm looking at the work, but I'm also looking at, do I want to spend X amount of time with you? I'm not going to say I haven't made mistakes. I'm not going to say I haven't. But generally, everyone has been really great to work with in our company, thankfully. We haven't had anyone that's been so bad that we've killed a project that usually that does happen it's very common ask some of my other friends they'll tell you stories about killing projects with Stuyvesant you know they were the one they didn't want to work with him and they killed it and I'm not going to that's not my story to tell but but the point is it happens everywhere just like your print run can get damaged in publishing it can happen you know these stories are very common actually no, we've had a good time with people, and uh, but you want to find the, the person that you think the work is really interesting and good and is going to be a good fit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember being a young, budding artist and going to portfolio reviews to having my work reviewed. Mm -hmm. And I remember going there and thinking that they were there to look at my work and that what I – like the way I looked and my you know personality and the things I said was not as important. Um, and, of course, now – with age and wisdom, I have learned that, of course, like you say, it's partly a character thing. Like you're mm -hmm. trying to figure out, like, is this person not only is his work great, but is this person somebody you want to work with? Because, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes in my career, and the primary one that I talk about way too much on the podcast is is that at a certain point in my life, I was a horribly arrogant shit. I was a, a like just, I thought way too highly of myself for no fucking reason, and it hurt me. Like, you know, people basically like people didn't want to work with me and, and I don't blame them one bit. Uh, I, at, that, at that time, I was uh, probably not enjoyable to work with. So, you know, 
it happens. It happens. We all go through dark periods. You know, I have a dark period too. And uh, I feel like my time when I was living in New York was a very dark period where, you know, I was angry at everything often all the time and, and people didn't want to be around me. I've apologized to people in hindsight about that sometimes. And, but, but the portfolio reviews are character analysis, but it is maybe perhaps art has become too obsessed with the presentation and how we look and not enough on the quality of the work. And we can trade off, either, but we all make mistakes and the ability is to learn from it and to move forward and to try to be more understanding and more, you know, just move forward. I don't know. We try, but unfortunately, lots of times we fail. But Always. Whatever. We always yeah. fail. That's how we learn. But we hope we learn from our <laughs> mistakes and don't fail twice in the same way. Just got to get back up, you know? Indeed. All right. You keep mentioning that you're a, a small um, publishing house. And so yeah. when, when you say that, I'm thinking you're talking about like um, edition sizes, like the, the print run. Is that what you mean by that? So small is no longer designated by the size of the editions. It hasn't been for probably 10 years now. Okay. It shows how out of date I am. It's okay. Well, it has to do with how technology has changed in printing and people print edition sizes that they want necessarily what their market can hold, what they can sell to, not necessarily just for cost value. It was always cheap to cost value until recently. Small is based not only just on how many employees you have, but what your goal might be. Some publishers, their goal, they've been around as long as me, were to be a heavyweight publisher. They wanted to put out 25 titles a year they want to be the next title. That was Mac's goal from day one. That's what they became. That's Stanley Barker's goal. That's what they're becoming. One, some of these are wonderful people. This is not a negative. It's just that was their business structure. That was their business plan. And there are others who want that goal, who can't achieve it. I won't go into those names, who, who are striving for it and are overly obsessed with names and money and power. But some of us, and there's many of us who are like me, are we're all small press, and small, and that that term small press, all of those, including Stanley Barker, are small press versus the real publishing industry, which is what that term originated from. They mean like versus like Bantine and you know, Penguin Random House. Yeah, we're not publishing at that scale, and so that's what small press meant. You can be very profitable, large small press though which is what I'm saying. And so, but then there are these smaller, small, those like heavyweight small presses and prize fighting. And we're like, you know, featherweight small presses. And there are people like me, uh, Imageless, me, Skinner Box. There's a whole lot of different people that are my size. We might only have two employees and only put out one to five titles a year, depending on the size of the title. And that's fine. And we vary what we're doing here because we're not worrying about that end goal, that monetary amount, as much as we are making the beauty of the product. Yeah, and it's a choice. It's a business model choice. It's a decision choice. And one is not better than another, as long as people are realistic. So it's not tied anymore to editions per se. There's an older set of photo book collectors and older publishers who think it still is, and it isn't. I, uh, because, yes, the cost value, of course, the more you make a book on an offset press, the cheaper it gets still. Generally, generally, it's not always exactly the same. 
but we now have many different ways to make books and many different types of printing. As Zatara Press, we've used almost all of them accidentally, <laughs> not intentionally. Yeah, that was going to be my question is like, so what methodologies are you using? Are you using, you know, sort of print on demand kind of styles or are you doing like the large print runs that you then wait for the shipment from France or China or wherever it comes from? Print on demand refers to a business structure style. So we're not going to use that term because that's the wrong term. My mistake. What you're referring to is probably the difference between what we call digital press and traditional offset press. Though it's also called di digital offset too, depending on what you use, because some of the digital offsets are using blankets and platens and things like that. So, but there's a series of different technologies. There's four or five digital techno printing technologies. There's two, four really offset or not even to say offset. We'll call them analog traditional printing technologies because a rotogravure is not an offset. But you have offset and then you have UV offset, which is ultraviolet offset, which is becoming pretty much the standard in the industry. But at one point or another, we let the form and the function of our project we're designing dictate not only the design, the unique art object design, but also the edition size, what audience we think it'll reach based on maybe what the subject of the book is, but also what the audience of the photographer, like what their following is but also what we want the intent of the project to be. And that's what's more important. We envision a project to be a certain way, and then we try to find design elements or printing styles to fit that. Uh, we have printed on 70s offset machines that also printed labels for Sawyer spice containers, okay? Sour spice containers. You might remember sour spices. But we have also done stuff on the most high-end UV presses both Kamari's and Mitsubishi's that exist. We've done stuff on Heidelbergs, but we've also printed on Indigos, Next Presses, and the Canon Presses, which are really just the Xerox phasers, basically. And we varied it all up. We've also worked on newsprint digital projects as well. And then ourselves, Carbon County is letterpress and inkjet and handmade boxes, Carbon County Folio Box, which was done in-house, all of it intentionally. Well, that's something I noticed too, is like you have a pretty wide range. Like majority of your books seem to be in the $50 or less range, but then you have a couple of random ones that are like $1,200, but with, but they have the, you know, the custom box and the, a print in them and all this kind of stuff. So like, there's a reason for the price being so high, but as a general whole, I would say your, your, your catalog is pretty affordable. Let's say. It's funny because people don't think so. Really? Yes. The average individual right now in the industry doesn't want to spend more than $35 to $40 for a book, which is very, very hard to make a book that can break even after you have to double the price and do all the jazz with the mathematics. Some people say it should be a fifth of the price. That's almost impossible to achieve. If you can tell me where to make a hardcover book, even in China, for $4 that you want to sell for $35, for less than 5,000 units, please tell me. I want to know. I'll be there tomorrow because we've printed everywhere. We've printed in Germany. We've printed in Spain. We've printed in the United Kingdom. We've printed in the United States. I've worked on projects in South Korea. I've worked on projects in Italy. But, yeah, you do go where the money is and where the cost value is 
but you you print what you want and what you need, you know. Do you actually travel to those presses? That, yeah. That's so you're you're very hands on and you you're on the press floor. Yeah, we are. We're a unique art object book. That's what it's all about. So it's about making these books that are these beautiful pieces of art, which means the image reproduction quality is very important for us. I can't say that about every small press publisher. A lot don't do that. They don't care. But many do. No, they don't. They don't because they, they just want to make it close enough and move on and make an affordable soft cover, knock it out. But we do. We're, we go on press for every book. You, if the artist can come, the artist comes. Sometimes the artist can't come because of scheduling and it's just me. You should always do that. Technology's changed a little bit, though. Those UV presses really hold tight. You know, part of it was because things drift a lot and the color is getting them sink. Those UV presses are so tight, you really, you really can send wet proofs out overseas and look at them and probably could get away with a, a very decent book without being on press now. And I mean, in the last like three, four years, as opposed to 15 years ago, those 70s presses, you had to be there to check every form because it would drift in between the same form. Like we had an issue on a book with that one time among many fun printing issues I can talk about, but binding issues. But yeah, it's not, you, you try to find the press that you want to work with that, well, not you, your publisher's doing this. You're not doing any of this. You know, you're being told this from your publisher and they're hopefully informing you and talking to you transparently. Um, we're a transparent company. We base our concept on this idea where I'm informing everyone. I don't know how to publish books without educating the people I make books with. And it's why the people we've published with have gone off to go do their own things sometimes afterwards. Because it's like, I don't know how to do it without it kind of being like workshop, not only in color theory, but also in publishing. Because nothing has ever come to us completed. Even if, let's say, I liked your work, no one's ever had their files up to spec one person has. I'm not going to say it was. And it's not who you think. And we've always sit them down and they come and we go through sessions of color editing and working and often maybe rescanning. Cut me okay. off. No, I have a question about that. Where okay. in your mind? <laughs> no, for years, I've had this like ongoing problem that I have with digital contemporary professional digital cameras, which they only shoot in RGB. But all output is done in CMYK. So why the fuck can't they come up with a sensor that shoots in CMYK in order to make color matching and output easier? Because that's not how the system was designed 100 years ago. Now, I'm being serious. It, it's all based on a lab color system, which is based on RGB derivatives from essentially. It's all about how things are designed. It's the same way why... Why is the DPI a certain DPI versus lines on an Epson printer? Well, it's based on the technology of how it was designed in the 80s to the present day. You'd have to start from scratch and redesign something. That's why it hasn't shifted that way. It's a good question, though. And it never will because when people learn a system and there's a color consortium, which is what ICC stands for, there's a system and you're going to be stuck with it. Just look, it's not that difficult to understand color. Try doing black and white tritone separations, then you have a different conversation. <laughs> that's 
color conversion for a CMYK environment depends on the device, the output you're going to be printing on, and then obviously the medium it's going on. Whether it's an inkjet, which is just another printing process, the same as offset, the actual steps are almost the same. I know, but I mean, like I was teaching and I tried to teach students how to print like yeah. and and they thought it was just like like a five minute tutorial they thought i'd just show them how to hit print and lay it out on the piece of paper and yeah. like i ended up having to teach it it took like eight weeks like total like 16 sessions to just give them the foundations of how to make a good print and likely 90 percent will never get it and i I started in film and then I went to digital and I don't, I don't actually work in digital very often. I still very much work in film and have a full chemical lab, color, black and white, dark room and a full digital lab that you're sitting in right now. That helped me create a foundation having been in a color dark room, having done, worked in other mediums, but you just have to you're either going to have the type of brain that can take photos and not overly think about it in a Zen aspect and then be able to be technical when you have to be technical, or you're the type that's an intuitive photographer and you're not technical and you, you, and you pay printers to help you basically is what happens. And that's why there's a whole world of fine art printers. You know, there's different people of different skill sets, you know, some of the people I've published, I'm not as good a photographer as they are. They can't edit a file to save their lives. Some of them, but they're amazing photographers shooting wise. And I will never be as good as that. And I'm well aware of that. Doesn't mean I'm still not out making photographs, hopefully three times a week. <laughs> Taking a step back, you you had mentioned a long time ago that you, that most people like do other jobs to fund their projects and things like this. Do you work other jobs? Oh yeah. We all have other jobs, side gigs, side jobs. I have to check on a warehouse every so often that I have a job maintaining as a side side job, among other jobs. But yeah, as an example. Okay, just wondering. Any topics you want to talk about or expand on at this point? Yeah, I mean, you want to make a photo because you love making books and you want to see the project, not because you think it needs to be a monograph and that you feel like it's an endpoint there's also different photo book business models, publisher business models. You mentioned there are four of them. Four or five, they? depending on how you talk about it. I work in a collaborative business model with my publishers. So some books we pay everything for, some we're collaborating often on a 50-50 system. Not always, but often. But that's just how it kind of organically happened in some function. We didn't necessarily design it that way. Some of the other stuff was very designed. That was not. One of the other business models is what we call the pay-to-play model, which is very big in Europe as well as in the United States. But in Europe, it's a little more, a little less of a ripoff, you know. And if you go to some of the German, I'm not gonna drop names, but some of the German pay-to-play companies, you will get a beautiful book when it costs eighteen thousand euro or something to make. Well, that's about right. You know, 9,000 for the book, 4,000 for the designer, 3,000 for the company overhead. I mean, a little promotion for 2,000. There you go, 18,000. They're not ripping you off very much. It does not cost $30,000 to make a photo book unless your book has got gold leaf or something on it, or it's all handmade, like Everglades has seven handmade pieces 
in each book, which is part of why it was expensive, but it doesn't cost that. And so there's this pay to play model where people are asking, there's a lot of American publishers trying to do this. Oh, give us a lot of money and here's your books. And you, and they're just cranking out these literally paper wrap covered PUR glue bound Chinese printed books, which visually sometimes look good, the images, but they don't have a lot of design to them. And it's, it's a scam. It's a scam. They'll write the same contract to every single person they see. Well, one of the things that I've run into is that a lot of people, a lot of creative people, they think that publishing the book is the end. They think like, oh, I just want my book published. But yeah. they don't realize that that's literally just the beginning of the project. Yeah, you're right about that. It's, it is the step of getting the book out there is actually about the same amount of time as making the book, designing and making the book and printing the book and all that stuff we talked about, the match prints and the color correction going on press, all the act of making a book. And let alone the act of you as the photographer shooting it for 10 years, like some of the people I've worked with eight years, 10 years, some of these projects have been very long shooting times. Some have been short, some of the books we published, homesick, then and there, very short shooting block periods some very long you know when justin fizet's book comes out it will be he shot that for over a decade it was something like eight or nine years for jenny riffle's scavenger it was eight and a half years for everglades or nine years for everglades that's i mean what the photographer should then you've got the book production block period like a movie like cinema which i came out of like and then you've got the promotion period and i often joke that I only have time to really do four things. I have time to design and make books. I have time to sell books. I have time to make my own work, or I have time to work on my house. That's it. That's the only. That's the only. I only have enough time to do one of the four, and I have to pick which one each day of those four. That's the game, you know. So you're right. It takes a long time. It does. Oh yeah, but I mean, a lot, as I said, like I mean, I know a lot of artists that like they've gone through all the effort they, to find a publisher. They got a publisher, they printed a book, and then they're sitting in their garage. Well, it's true of everybody. There, there are more books than there are venues for people to put them in. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. You know, regardless of how good the book is. Well, but they just don't realize that like it's like it's like it's like a writer who writes a book, and then they need to go on a book tour. Like so, they they still need to like advertise and market and publish yeah. and, and get and get the book to the people they can't just sit there and think i have a book you should come and want it from me like they still have to be actively participating in getting people interested in the book and that's something that i think a lot of artists think uh, that's not necessary yeah certainly the first year and a half of the company i didn't realize how much marketing and promotion was necessary and I was still of the theory, which I still think is a pure, more pure thought that the art should stand on its own. But regardless of that, we did bring in marketing and social media individuals. And then the companies expanded and contracted at times. But the reality is, yeah, you know, you do have to sell a book. You do have to get stuff out there. You go to the book fairs, which is a way to meet people and collaborate, by the way. Another function of where to meet people is at a book fair. You do the book fairs, but book fairs are not some sustainable business model. You know, you're lucky if you make 15% return on your investment for the total fair, if you do that. 
and you usually go to the fair with the idea of paying your own way and you just hope to cover the cost of the table maybe and you for my case i try to turn it into shooting trip photography for making trips so whenever i've been traveling all these these places you go to these fairs and you know and as a publisher you hope to build up to what we call the big four fairs la art book fair new york art book fair which used to be apad which is now paris photo apad and paris photo or peri photo as the photo guys like to say it paris photo which actually is a series of fairs paris photo is bigger in the function like uh art basel miami we participate in polycopies shout out to those guys because i'm a big fan of polycopies which is sebastian howell and laurent who i will forget his last name and i will apologize laurent if you listen to this but amazing guys who also were for years running the photo book fair at Arl. And because we had European connections and we, I always was, I'm always about not just a, the world being flat and all of us interconnecting. We had our books in Arl through our European contact, Julia Bianchi, who's an amazing photographer out of Italy, who was an old friend. We had been at ICP together in New York, which is the International Center of Photography. And so, we were able to get into polycopies during Paris Photo, which was like the first time an American publisher had been there and things like that. Because we're making these unique art object books, I love those guys. I love that space. A lot of people would love to be at off-print Paris. They want to be at Paris Photo proper. That That's not a goal of us. Our goal is to remain small, to remain intimate, to remain nimble and guerrilla and be able to jive and work around and be able to do like we did last year kind of go dormant for 2020 because there's no market <laughs> there's no place no one was buying books it's a luxury it's a luxury item by definition a photo book is sorry to break that to everybody and so we went dormant somewhat to to get a better idea of if we would still have a country uh, if there would still be an economic market I think the uh, we're still. I think the jury's still out on those two. I I would I hope they stabilize, but uh, got a ways to go as of the recording of this in February of 2021, and so you know, but we still we have to start making books again, regardless. But you know, the book fairs are a fun object, but a lot of people enjoy it more for the unquantifiable advertising amount. And in marketing or something, you have a term that something is unquantifiable. You didn't make your sales number, but 30% maybe of what well, you could have made that number is like an unquantifiable promotional sales number kind of in some function. And that that is important, the book fairs, but it's also exhausting. In 2019, we, we were releasing Carbon County, which we built in 2018 into 2019. And APAD, photography show APAD, decides to have their book fair and LAR book fair a week apart. Now this only affects photo book publishers because the other publishers at LAR book fair zines, wonderful LGBTQ magazines, which I love and things like that. They, you know, they're not at APAD and APAD gallerists aren't at West, you know, LAR book fair, but the small sub Venn diagram of photo book publishers were, so we had to figure out how to move all the product Sunday night to be there Wednesday night to set up Thursday morning in L.A. from New York to L.A. Now, it would have been $900 to overnight it all, 
In a normal setting, you might have just media mailed it all, but you can't do that with that kind of timetable. I didn't want to set up two products. So we put everything in the back of the car and we drove across country in three days. John Sanderson and me, that's the type of crazy things photo book fairs do. Like when we do polycopies, we're hauling all this product into Europe and over and up, up spiral staircases and things. It's like, and it's on a boat. It's this great boat, you know, polycopies is. And it's a really kind of, more underground community because that was the world I came out of is Zen photography, Zen art, underground art. And that will always be the foundation. Someone will always be a little rougher company because of that and rougher my own work because of that background and nonprofit art worlds that were, you know, community, but were more underground in that sense than a traditional refined spaces that some people came out of. They only ever worked in that. Yeah, I noticed you ran a community darkroom. Yes, uh, I started and ran what the time was known as the Film Mechanic Studios Community Public Dark Film Mechanic Studios Public Darkroom, and it has changed hands four times since then. From what I can tell, it's a little iffy. I have no connection to it. It's run as the Asheville Darkroom. It's changed locations, but yeah, it was an idea originally. I I had made a movie complete failure, but we won't go into that. We made a movie all around the world. And I started this community darkroom education space. It was part of a larger nonprofit building in space in Asheville called the Flood Gallery Fine Arts Center and Film Mechanics Studios. And so that have something like 28 studios, someone's going to correct me about that, in that building at the time. And so we were all kind of collaboratively, it was a community Sometimes begrudgingly, sometimes you know, like siblings, not always necessarily always happy with each other. But regardless, there was an active community. I come out of that. I spent a decade in Asheville, North Carolina, and I spent about five or six years of that working in this art community, which was all mediums and all these things. And so Zen and art was a big part in that community, it still is, but is also there was about 250 artists in this kind of river arts district that was branded and called that. And then it gentrified itself and it, you know, there's still some artists there. I'm not saying there aren't there's a lot of people there, but people had to move out of town. People live further out, people had to get jobs. And the golden era of that where you had like the $200, 800 square foot studios for $200, things like that is gone. And that was probably the end of that era from the 80s and the 90s. And this is the early aughts we're talking about. That's the end of it. This was the death cry of that. I've been at the death cry of a lot of things in life. The death cry of New York's art community in Brooklyn. The death cry of perhaps the photo book world. And I've been sometimes at this weird interjunction that like when I get to it, it's probably got three years before it'd be left on the side of the road for dead. Anyways, Asheville is a great place. And so we had a community darkroom there, but it was very early on. I realized after we, I only ran it for about a year and a half first year that I could be make work or I could run a community education space. I did not have time to do both. I ran a community darkroom for nine years. Yeah. Did you have time to make your own work or were you mostly running and administrating a space? You know, that's the irony of it right there. Well, sadly, it, it was it was a miserable failure. And so I actually yeah. had lots of time um, yeah. because there just weren't many people using it. So that's what happened with with the one I had. It was it was financially a failure and not enough people using it because there's not enough population base in Asheville. Asheville is a 
small town, basically, a large, small town, the, the smallest of the city sizes, basically a large town. And it's just not enough people there. It's kept running right now through donations and volunteer people who run it. It's their own thing. I, I don't even know who runs it. Wonderful people use it. But it was a failure. And years later, I had the benefit of knowing a good friend, Chris Bennett, of New, who runs, started New Space. We went to graduate school at Hartford together, Hartford Art School. And I, we sat down. And I was like, hey, man, did I do this entirely wrong? Or like, what was it? And we came to the conclusion that, no, there just wasn't enough population or enough monetary money and backers in the city. And, and Asheville and North Carolina in general has always had a problem of there's not enough grants, there's not enough money. The Asheville always was just an art colony in the woods, basically. And it still kind of is. And so, you know, there just, you know, wasn't isn't a lot of infrastructure to keep something running like that, as opposed to here in Richmond, where there are there's like two community art groups in this city. You know, there in Richmond, Virginia, where we're based, there's like community printmaking spaces, there's nonprofits left and right, because there is that found those people who will put money into it slash also the population base to use it. Both are necessary. So yeah, it, we kind of had a few things going against it. Also, it was pre it was pre social media applications. I mean, the social media that was around when we did that was Facebook. That's it. <laughs> like, I mean, MySpace, nobody was using that anymore. It was Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, all those things, they were just being birthed. And I sure as hell wasn't using them. Other people might have been. But I don't remember any of my friends using them either. So I know from my look at when they start, like, you know, you look at the dates, technically some of them started, but no one was using them where we lived. You know? Indeed. So, yeah, that was some of it. Now when you start a space, go to a bookstore, maybe a community print space, something, it's a different era. You've got, you know, you got Indiegogo, you've got things like Kickstarter, you know, which we used Kickstarter to pre-sale platform for John Sanderson's folio box and booklet, Carbon County. That didn't exist when I made the short film I tried to do, you know, it didn't happen. Kickstarter was not around that. I think they came around 2010. Like, so it's like, you know, you just had to figure it out, you know? I'm horribly intimidated about the whole like Indiegogo Kickstarter stuff because I'm, I'm too, um, I don't know, pr uh, proud, maybe? Like, I feel bad, you know, sort of, uh, like, I feel like, don't get me wrong, some of the projects on there are phenomenal, and I love being able to support them when I can, but for me, it feels like I'm. it's a begging, like, from the, the act of, like, being the person putting the thing up there. I mm -hmm. feel like it's, it's basically like a, I have this great idea, and I can't do it, pretty please because well and i say this because because of the way it's designed because it's based off of like you put it up there but then you have to email all your friends and ask them to do it and then ask them to then post it on social media and so like you you literally are just like begging your friends to help you and your relations and all and that to me that's very mm -hmm. difficult that's a problem in general um it, that's my issue i've had with kickstarter for years and we were never going to do one and we, we used Carbon County Booklet just as a pre-sale platform, essentially, less than a begging platform. But it's always been my issue with that. And then I, that's how I feel the art world in general has become. The entire social media is self-promotion and begging people to sell stuff. Any idea how many not just like come buy my thing or 
sell, sell, sell comes across to me, or let alone submissions, but all three, you know, constantly. It's part of why I kind of, you'll notice I don't have a very large social media presence of my own, my personal social media presence, because I can't stand it. And I, I find it to be this sickening thing. And we used to have real emotional, physical connections since COVID-19 began, that era that we're in, we are forced to have to use only this. And even I have found myself more connected and more dominantly working through social media because I have to. I'm aware, even if I don't like something, I'm aware that this is what's happening. A media interconnected future of branding, and that's the future. All you guys that have companies doing that, great. That is the future. I get it. It doesn't mean I like it. It doesn't mean I want to do it. But I respect it and I understand it. I couldn't have said that 10 years ago, but I can say that now and, and be like, no, I, I, I get it that this is this is where we're headed. Maybe I'll just go back in my dark room. Well, it's hard, that balance of like the amount of time and energy that you put into things like social media, marketing, all that kind of stuff versus the time energy of making better work. Yeah. I don't see a direct correlation anymore. I think people did more six, seven years ago. And if you talk to off off camera, off audio, you talk to people in private about their real numbers, try to get someone to tell you their real numbers. One advantage of having friends is I actually know a lot of people's real numbers. But one of the numbers people have been talking about very publicly is the algorithm numbers. You're not getting any hits anymore. You're not getting anyone to see anything. And I mean, some of these great guys I work with in our company, you know, they're sitting there like, yeah, man, I, I used to be able to drive sales. I can't drive anything. So it's all, it's being flattened this last two years. It's been about two years since it started happening. And that's where the future's headed. So I guess I still send out press releases. I still do it the old fashioned way. Preview books go out too. We still do that whole arm of the publishing, but I still send blind submissions out myself, my own work. You know, the company's goal was always to, Zatara's goal was always to make these projects, these people that I wanted to see, like Lisa Elmley, I wanted to see Everglades from print. So I went and made it, kind of like George Harrison, you know, funding the you know life of Brian. And I wanted to see that book. So I went and did it And with Lisa. It's a beautiful book. And I'm very happy we did it every day. But that's not always everyone's goal. Some is for their company to kind of half promote their own work. We had the first two books that were my own work, but that was just because we had them. You know, it was just kind of how most companies start. You talk to TBW and Paul Sheik. Yeah, the very first TBW is a Paul Sheik book. There, there hasn't really ever been one since, but that's a normal origin story. And so, but it's a question of what are they promoting? And someone like Paul is promoting all these great artists that he wants to work with. And someone like me, it's the same thing. I slipped in a book two years ago because I slipped a book in of mine real quietly, but you'll notice there's never been a big advertising push for it because I don't feel that's not the goal of the company. You know, I can slip a, a book in occasionally, but it was not about them trying to look at our stuff because that was not why you got into it, you know? All right. So wrapping this up, I have like two little last things. So the one is the question of three creative people, artists, whatever that you think should get some more exposure like that you know that maybe are not as well known as you feel like they should be um and and a little bit of why you think they're so uh, interesting or or people should be paying more attention to them 
See, that's where you put me on the spot. Yeah, I'm with you on that. There are always people that are not being seen enough. A lot of who we published have been those people. You know, they are – now, I'm not going to say they're emerging. Some are very much middle career artists. But maybe they didn't have the gatekeepers that let them elevate them, which is something that frustrates me. Supposedly, I'm a bottom-tier gatekeeper. I think that's probably true, but not intentionally that I go about trying to do that. But in retrospect, you fall into things. I didn't like – anyways, you fall into things. But three artists, you know, people aren't necessarily looking enough at or – I mean, or maybe I just think people should look at. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. I'm a big fan of Joshua Rashad McFadden's work. When I met him, he had just done that first book with SEPA editions, and we were on a panel discussion together. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Now he's doing amazing journalism work on Black Lives Matter and the protests, the Floyd protests, and teaching and all these other things. I think he's in upstate New York now. But that is an issue in the United States. I can't speak to every country. I only play in Europe working. I don't work in Europe. I will, every day of the week, I do not work in Europe. I play in Europe when I go to work. But we've had an issue with photographers of color and then photographers of color, people of color, not being represented enough in the photo industry. And something I said a few years back through four or five years ago, and I try, try to, and it, you know, that's an example of something. So when I see his work, I'm like, yeah, this is work that needs to be seen. This is stuff I nominated from him for a PDN 30. He doesn't even know that. Uh, he's probably going to listen to this and find that out. But he didn't make it because it was just my nomination. I'm not the one who selects the selectors. That's the next tier up. Everyone, a whole bunch of people nominate. Then back then the editor, what's his face? His name just went out of my head. He selects it, him and his team. And then there you have that list that used to be like 15 people, right, PDN 30. Probably isn't going to ever be one again. Who knows? Maybe there was. I'm not keeping up on the games in the contest world. But that's a person whose work is really important to see. But then there are guys... I think of like Joe Rodriguez out of the International Center of Photography. He's got a couple of books, but you would never think of him as a book photographer. The books were almost like end caps in some function to long-form editorial projects, long-form documentary projects. Amazing educator out of there. But like there are guys who are well-known or who have influenced so many students but are not ever going to be remembered in this pantheon that just celebrates, you know, Stephen Shore and celebrates, you know, What's his face? He's got the new show up at ICP coming up right now. This went right out of my head. You know, it'll kick me later. But the point is to celebrate these big names, Nan Golden, these elevated names who are great workers in their own right. But we do create a history, and this history is writing other people out. And if you go and talk to someone like Jerry Olsman or someone like that, Jerry, don't be like, well, at one point they were in that pantheon in history. In another 10 years, they're, they're out. They're, they've been, they're being written out by the current history writers and curators. And the irony is, can you name enough people of color or ethnic people in that history? And you can't. And you can't not elevate it to that same level. And only now are we contemporarily elevating the Dwa Bays and people like that up to that. Uh, I mean, like, as we speak. And so Joshua's work and someone like Joe Rodriguez's work, and Joe, I studied on, I had to took class from him, like 
you know, those are the, some of the people that need to be, you know, some of the teachers that maybe they're known in that world and influenced a lot of people, but will only be remembered by their students. We hope they'll be remembered, but they're never going to make it big, you know. And, and that's that question is, do we, should we make it big? I've never been my goal, but a lot of people's it was, you know. Nothing will get you sadder than being in a room with a bunch of men in their 60s who knew everybody but never did anything or never made it in their minds, but air quotes. But, yeah, a third name, I mean, ah, man, now that's when you get me on the spot. I got to come up with names to think about it a second. Ah, see, this is my problem. This is why I have I keep a, we keep a very big library. Not just to mm -hmm. teach from, which is also to teach from. When I used to teach more classes, I had a photo book education group and stuff too before COVID. It had been going for about four or five years before COVID, which is a good run. But the point is I would go down there and I would reference the library to remember the names. And that's what I do. And I go look at the what's on the shelf and go, oh, you know, Samaris or somebody. Or, oh, yeah. Bernice Abbott, you know, because I remember the images and the faces and that's how my brain works, which is why I'm sequenced really well, too, and things like that. But, like, I don't – I'm bad with the whole – perfectly having the whole history memorized verbatim, even though I have it and I've studied it, because I'll know that image and then decade later think about it. It's perfectly fine. Two names is more than enough. It's well, I okay. mean, people, people could pay more attention to – I mean – you know, here, here's, here's, I'll tell you who the, the third person. You know, people need to pay more attention to the art that's happening in their own back door, in their own communities. I started at a regional community level, and I did everything you can imagine to make money as a photographer those those first couple of years. We're not going to talk about that on this podcast. And we're going to go forward though and say. If you want to be better at your skill set, you try to study to be better with people, right? And that's what happened to me. And I ended up in New York studying and, and doing it. And I'd already had a studio before that, an assistance. And in New York, we did that. And then we came to where the company's based in Richmond, Virginia. But the point is, at that community level, like in Richmond, there are hundreds of photographers. I don't know. Those are the photographers we need to be paying attention to, too. We don't pay attention to them because they don't fit within our academia or our at the tier that we are at. Maybe some people work very hard to get to that tier. I know guys who went undergrad to grad, grad to teaching, teaching to representation. And I mean, they never worked in the real world. They never had a studio practice. They never spent years sharing studios with buildings sleeping on floors without insulation on the wall. They never built dark rooms. They never did any of this because the school provided the dark room. That's part of why we never have built that. Or the school provided the Epson 9890 or something. And so, but there's a whole world that we forget sometimes of photographers that are hobbyist amateurs or professional amateurs. If you're a hobbyist, Professionally, make money or you're doing it for a living. You can be a master or you can be an amateur. You can be a hobbyist master. One of my good friends and collectors in this town here is a master black and white printer, but that's not his job. He's been an emergency room doctor for 60 years. That was his real job. But 
He didn't want to bastardize the art. Like, it's the purity of it to him. He could have. He could have tried to work up a chain. It wasn't his goal. But there's a whole world of guys doing that now digitally, too. Not talking about the, my old friend who's 78. I'm talking about guys that are in their 20s and their 30s with A7Rs and 5D Mark IVs or whatever the kids are using these days. And they're out there on the streets photographing Black Lives Matter. They're out there photographing the Floyd, out there photographing protests. There's a whole world of photographers, and they don't have – they only exist on the social media platforms. They only exist to their own community locally and culturally, which is where I came from and then went away from. Not entirely intentionally. It happened gradually. And those are the photographers we need to pay attention to. And it's true in every city, every city, India, China, Germany, everywhere, there is those photographers that maybe some, and there's always the ones that are a lot of shit. Let's say of that group, probably let's say half are shit. I'm not saying they're good. But they still need to be recognized for what they're doing. And recognized and respected on some level but then you got to find that 10 percent of those let's say 300 is a number they're doing really good work and no one's no one's noticing you know only the local community here is noticing it and they're out there and it is good work it is good work but we're going to instead pay an editorial magazine to send a photographer from new york down to Atlanta or down to somewhere else, instead of hiring that photographer that's down there, of which there are many. Now, maybe the work wouldn't be the same quality. Who knows? One could question where the stuff that's coming from New York is, too, in that matter of function. But those are the people, the people that aren't being seen, the people that don't haven't had their voice really seen in this upper-level industry but you know we work at the levels we end up at the cream does rise to the top something i discovered accidentally when we started this and it was my goal was always just to be a better printer and to be a better photographer and then accidentally ended up rubbing shoulders with almost a list of everybody you'd ever want to rub shoulders with it was not the goal the goal was underground punk shows with with cameras and uh long hair i had hair and long hair and that was where we started in guerrilla education dark rooms. And then you end up at Paris Photo with the most famous Russian photographer of all time talking to your friend. And you don't know how that happened because that was not your that was not why you were trying to be there. And I think a lot of people, it is their goal to be there. So I think we should respect those guys who are still there doing what where we started. And I think you started in a similar spot, you know, a similar concept. And they're there. More than ever. My first paid photo assignment ever. I was, let's see, two, 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 two years out of undergrad, and the Washington City paper hired me to go take the pictures of the making of a porn film being done illegally in the District of Columbia because it, that was against the law to make pornography in Washington, D.C. proper, but you could do it in Virginia legally or Maryland <laughs> legally, but you couldn't do it in D.C., so I had to go and somehow figure out a way to tastefully to photograph a making of a porn film for a family publication. So that's my first paid photo assignment ever. Where's that photo book, you know? 
Well, yeah, it's, I've got no. a little archive of stuff. Yeah. No, there was a woman who did that a few years back and got all the press and I, I can't remember her name. It will come back to me. I apologize if it's somebody I should remember or I know personally, but, and they had done that. They went into, into the Valley in Los Angeles and, but it was, how do you photograph this from the right? They, they took a very fine art documentary approach to the background of pornography for this editorial and some images work better than others. That's an editing maybe opinion. I don't know how, how long the access was. That's one of the issues with something like that. You never get long form time. I always am a fan of long form documentary, embedding time when you spend time with the people. That's my background, like Joe Rodriguez embedding in, in my own work and not, oh, helicoptering is the wrong term, so that's a wrong phrase. Not having a limited time, but that is how short form article works. It is a limited time. There's not an infinite budget. So, I mean, it is what it is. You know what I mean? Parachuting in, I think it was the Parachuting first. in, yes. You helicopter, parents helicopter in, people parachute in. You're right, yes. Yeah. Yes. My helicopter has hit a mountain and burned and fallen apart sometimes. So, all right. Last little bit, any advice for the next generation or, you know, let's do it specifically for you. Advice for anybody who's looking for a publisher. You're looking for a publisher, you know, try to meet them in person, try to get in front of them. That's important work. You know, that's important to get in front of that publisher and in front of and to break bread and to get to know them. And it might take time. And, you know, just because you think your project's done, it might not be. We've sent projects back and funded the continuing shooting while we were designing them, things like that. Pickup shoots is what we call them in cinema. It's a similar function. I applied it, reverse applied it to photo books. Where do you where do you meet the people? Where do you live? I mean, you just got to have hope that you want this book to be made, but don't get caught into one of these pay a lot of money scams. It might end up costing some money. You should be putting maybe something forward or not depending on the publisher, but at the same function, you know, do it because you want to do it, not because you think you need a book to complete a hole in yourself or to complete a hole in your resume or to complete some mental milestone you've got. Do it because you think the work needs to be seen in this format and then be open to ideas. Often books come fully designed to me and we don't like that and I want to redesign it. Uh, well, I won't even take a project if it does that, but like usually 99.9%. There's that one 0.01% coming up because the guys, the, the couple that did that project happened to design in the same wabi-sabi synesthetic I designed it that does fit the company's ethos. Coincidence, coincidence. But eventually you roll the odds, right? But you know, don't always have it fully designed. Be open to ideas. Be open to things and interpretations and understand that you probably you're not your own best sequencer, designer, or editor. You're probably not your own best printer either. You're probably only your own best photographer because of your eye and what you choose to make and the decisions you make, the many infinite decisions in photography. And some people can play a little bit in all of it. I have a tendency to play a little bit in all of it, but you know, videography is a very big weak world, a weak point in my own background. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm nowhere near the best film and video person as my ex or some of my former friends, my old editor or any of them are way, you know, miles beyond what I'll ever be, you know, but you know, some of them can't figure out how to sequence a book 
to save their life, you know, and that comes really naturally, patterns and things like that. So know where your strengths and your weaknesses are. Be open to interpretation. Be open to waiting in time. It might be 15 years, you know, 20 years after you finish the project. I'm trying to make a hardcover of one of my personal bodies of work, Argyle Lane, which we did as a booklet version way back in the day, kind of a zine booklet before Zatara Press. And I don't know if it's, it's probably not going to be a Zatara Press book. It's going to be like my book. But we've been talking about doing this hardcover for a decade. You know, <laughs> like, you know, it's a dated project now. Like, you know, and it's become a vintage project in the visual imagery too. Like, which is absolutely kind of a hilarious thought that I've talked to the people who are in the book and it's like, you know, how much the world has changed just in that, you know, it's actually about 11 years ago. By the time we print the book, it'd be 12 years, but, but don't be, don't be afraid of waiting and just you wait the long game. You know, you never know, you know, do it for the love. You know, it's all about the love of what we do. Indeed. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.